Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Way podcast in association with Football.London's coverage of the Gunners across the 2022-23 season. This is our pilot episode of what is hopefully going to be a weekly podcast where myself, Tom Canton, or one of our other hosts will be joined weekly by Arsenal writer Kaya Karnak. How are you doing, mate? You good, Joel? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm looking forward to this. I'm looking forward to seeing what we're able to come up with and hopefully getting everyone who's listening involved as much as possible, seeing where we go with this kind of thing. And yeah, it should be should be a fun year uh, as we're, we're going through the season. It should be good. Absolutely. I mean, it started off as fun as it could possibly be, to be fair. Uh, three <laughs> wins to kick off the season and, of course, hopefully uh, another one at the weekend. Uh, with this being the first episode and starting, of course, three games into the season, it does make sense if we kick things off by going and looking back at how the season has started and I suppose the best place to start is how surprised are you that we've won three games considering <laughs> they're against Crystal Palace and Leicester and of course most recently Bournemouth I mean there's a couple of banana skins I think in there that we've been able to avoid but yeah. I still think they're three games that most people would have expected us to pick up three points in yeah uh, but having said that we got no points from Palace last year um, we we got six from uh, from um, Leicester, I, I don't know what the equivalent team to Bournemouth is from last season, but you know yeah. those, those aren't necessarily points that were on the board. But I'm going to go back to the word we used at the start of this podcast. I'm going to say fun is how I describe those first three games. And like obviously, you went into it expecting Arsenal to win, and they were the the favourites. And you know, no one's getting too carried away with themselves, despite what I think a lot of people are saying on social media and people sort of celebration police are out again and being all critical of the club for getting carried away about the fact they're top of the league. I don't think anyone's realistically saying that Arsenal are in a title charge or anything like that because of the fact that they've, they've won three games. It's just like, it's it's as good a season start as it could have been. And I'm not surprised because the summer and pre-season went so well. Like They've got all the transfers they wanted done. Everything We'll talk a bit more about transfers later in the show, but everything else is kind of a bonus at this point. So yeah, they, they've planned it really well. And like, I, I don't know what you think, but I think sort of the, the idea of playing the same starting eleven twice in a row in the preseason games going into it has been really clever because everyone's talking about, you know, Arsenal played unchanged three games in a row. Realistically, it's five. And yeah. That is, that is massive, I think. Yeah, I think especially because preseason was kind of looked upon in kind of a critical fashion, actually, because we didn't take many youngsters at all, you know, on mm-hmm. that trip. And... Uh, that was one of the big things and disappointments that we weren't seeing Patino, we weren't seeing Salah, we weren't seeing Brooke Norton Cuffey and, and potentially the likes of Kayon Edwards to a lesser extent. But actually, what it's been able to do for us is not only demonstrate how much strength and depth that we've got in the team still, with plenty of players that, of course, now moved on, Pablo Marie, of course, being a, a key example of that, as well as others, but that we were able to, as you say, use those starting fixtures against uh Severe and, and Chelsea they were, weren't they, that we used the same lineup into those those games. And that consistency has been absolutely beneficial to, to the start of our season. You compare that, not only the results, but the, the teams to last season. You know, Bamiang and Lacazette were out with COVID. Um, ben White, of course, got, you know, he's, I think he was unwell as well, you know, after the second game of the season. So all of those things combined led to a very frantic, chaotic and more challenging in terms of the fixtures that we faced start yeah. the 2021-22 season. But this season's been a lot more organised, a lot more consistent, and that, I think, has obviously bled onto the field. But it's still been a step up in performance, most importantly, and I think our new signings have had a big thing to do with that, haven't they? 
yeah speaking of things that are fun let's remind ourselves of Brentford last year but no yes. um, that yes. was that was so much fun <laughs> but yeah the signings have been big and watching this all or nothing documentary the big takeaway for me has been how motivated those guys seemed at the end of it to come back and go again and yeah. I think and listen this is a comparison that doesn't quite stack up because um Liverpool were going for the title but that season where Liverpool got, was it 97 points and they still came second? Yeah. They could easily have fallen away and like lost faith and been really disappointed. But what they did was they came back, they went again and they, they won the title by quite some distance. And there was the motivating factor, I think, behind that was how close they come the season before. Uh, a lot of the reason why successful teams tend to be as successful as they are is because they've sort of got that motivation of not wanting to lose again behind them. And... Absolutely. The All or Nothing documentary has been big, hasn't it? Because everyone's just been sort of noticing that this team really was quite hurt by the fact that they, they couldn't come top four. I mean, they were they were so close, but yet so far at the end. And now I think we're seeing the motivation. They started like a house on fire and obviously tougher tests are to come. And Fulham this weekend probably isn't one of those. And Villa, the next game, probably isn't one of those either. But it's the kind of games that and the kind of starts of the season that you need to build momentum and there's lots of factors as to why getting points on the board is is good you know the world cup obviously being in the middle of the season is big that kind of stuff always helps so yeah it's it's, it's positive and yeah fun i mean it's i i enjoy going to arsenal games again whereas you know as much as i'm in a privileged position to go a lot of those lockdown games i wasn't really looking forward to going to them because i was yeah. thinking you know how how are arsenal going to score how am I going to watch this team try for 90 minutes to pass the ball around the goal and nowhere near it? Whereas now it's it's so much more fun to watch them because you know what you're going to see. You know you're going to see fun attacking play. And it's yeah, it's, it's I think it's a really good time to be an Arsenal fan and probably a good time to be starting a podcast all about Arsenal, isn't it? Yeah, potentially. And I mean, it's what, what it isn't a good time for is the person trying to get tickets because that's proving yes. to be incredibly difficult. Um for fans, you know, uh, so many of friends of mine that have tried to get tickets have unfortunately missed out. If you are listening and are a season ticket holder and for whatever reason can't go to a game, please put your ticket on Ticket Exchange because it really <laughs> does help out more fans. And of course, it does fill the stadium if you aren't able to go. So really important to kind of push that ahead. But it was interesting. You talked there about like, like Liverpool and kind of the differences in, in what we've seen from them and how they're able to kind of build upon their seasons. But looking back kind of the history of their their rise, they, they had a season where they finished on 76 points and we obviously finished fifth, and that was in 2016-17. In 2017-18... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course. I mean, and, and then 75 points the year later in 2017-18 when Arsenal were dropping down to sixth as well, yeah. unfortunately. But then in 2018-19, they went from that 75-ish point mark all the way up to 97 in the yeah. space of one season. And I think that was obviously the year that they brought in the likes of Allison and Van Dijk. And obviously, yeah. we know the differences that they made. But whilst I don't want to compare Saliba with Van Dijk and Allison with the influence of Zinchenko, or, you know, what they've managed to, to have up top with Salah and Mane and Firmino with the introduction of Jesus for us. But you can see a significant step up in the level of quality across the Arsenal team with just a few additions to the side, just three starting players that have changed this year. How yeah. with, we finished, I think, was it 69 points last season? What yeah. do you think is a realistic expectation with those additions that we could step up from a points totals perspective? 
tough to say. I mean, we're going to win every single yeah. game, aren't we? So 140. <laughs> we have so far. Yeah, that's the that's the, the challenge we're setting ourselves. But um, I don't know. Going back to that Liverpool comparison, the the interesting thing for me is it was so obvious what Liverpool needed. Obviously, they had that Champions League final against Real Madrid where yeah. Loris Carrius threw the ball into Karim Benzema and that was clear they needed a better goalkeeper. And it was clear they needed better defenders than Dejan Lovren and uh, Joel Matip at the back. I think it was Clavan was playing for them as well at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So we've had a similar renaissance in the sense that we clearly needed a better striker because as much as we all love Lacazette for how much he tried and ran himself into the ground every game and celebrated with passion and was a leader around the training ground, generally quite a good guy, although, you know, that final episode of All or Nothing <laughs> suggests he mm. lost his temper just as much as, as others. But I think it was clear that Arsenal needed a striker and it was clear that they needed uh, a left-back to compete with Kieran Tierney as well in the squad. Beyond that, I think you were you were questioning sort of how totally necessary everything was. And William Saliba coming into the back line has obviously improved things in the sense that the right back options are now suddenly so much stronger as well. And yeah, I think in terms of squad depth, you know, right now we're in a privileged position at Arsenal in the sense that they don't really have any injuries to contend with, not to serious first team players anyway. And I think that makes a big difference. And we have to bear in mind that those injuries will come um, if someone like a I don't know, if, if Gabriel Jesus, for example, were tomorrow to get injured, then Arsenal would be in a less strong position to, to go and win those games that, you know, we're predicting them to win every single one this season. But um, in terms of points, tough. I think, you, what so it was 69 last year. I yeah. don't think it's unreasonable to expect maybe a, a six-point jump, which is, you know, Ooh. given how many games Arsenal lost last season when they probably shouldn't have lost, if you think back to that Old Trafford game, um, the Everton, Everton game. yeah. Yeah, the three Brentford. Uh, Brentford. Yeah, well, that yeah. game, in my opinion, shouldn't have gone ahead because um, of all the COVID cases. Of course, yeah. if that game had happened, if it hadn't been the first uh, game of the season, then I think probably wouldn't have gone ahead. To be honest, but that's, yeah. that's you, think that, you think of that stretch of three games where we lost to Palace, Brighton, and Southampton. Yeah. You know, yeah. those three for sure. <sighs> that that Southampton game in particular, like the, we dominated the game. It wasn't. It was different to the Brighton and and Palace games because. Yeah. You know, any other week I'd bet on Arsenal winning with that performance, not changing anything, just the clinical finish that Saka could have had, could have had in the first half. There was a chance, I think, in the second half as well that we, we moved, uh, that we missed. And then they had a, an opportunity just dropped in from the box to... And it was wasn't it like... It's yeah, it's better. And it wasn't like with those, those Palace and Brighton games where, you know, Palace were clearly the better team. Brighton did a number on Arsenal in terms of the game plan. Southampton got one chance and scored from it. Arsenal didn't score any of their chances, and that was that was kind of it, really. And that was that was top four. I mean, if they, I think if they even how many points did Arsenal finish off? Two points. So, yeah. if they managed to find a way to win that game, then they would have been top four. Simple as that. Um, and there will be those kind of games throughout the season. This is a young squad who are inconsistent, and I think we've got to be ready for that. But the the strength of positivity around the, the squad right now, I think, means they're they're better prepared for it than they would have been and those experiences last year I mean they sort of know how to handle it and how to to get through those difficult situations so yeah I'd say six point jump is is you know not too unrealistic and what is it 75 points last season if I'm not mistaken we've got you third I'm not 100% certain I can quickly check on that but yeah Yeah, 75 points would have got you third yes yes fantastic see that is Top quality audio man looks up <laughs> on the internet for listeners to listen to. But yeah, uh, sorry about that, guys. I'm still getting used to this this new format. But yeah, so if, if Arsenal go up by six points, I don't think anyone will be too shocked given how they've started Ooh. the season. And yeah. I think 
you know, they, they, they look like they could do it. And Mikel Arteta's not happy with the, team, the way the team are playing right now. Like, he's not fully happy. He's, he's still targeting improvements. I think we all can see, you know, there's, there's areas that could improve. And this is a team winning three and four every week. So very, very upbeat and positive right now. You use the word prepared. Um, we're obviously still in the you know, crux of a transfer window in which, you know, I think a lot of us Arsenal fans can see, and I think even beyond Arsenal as well, that people can see that Arsenal are light in midfield, they're light potentially up top. Are Arsenal prepared? Because, you know, we use that word with what we've done, but is there an element of us if Partey gets injured or Xhaka gets injured or if Jesus gets injured or if Saka gets injured? Are we underprepared for the season? Yeah. The thing is about Thomas Partey, he's, he's a player who is very difficult to replace. And I think as maybe Arsenal fans and Arsenal writers and media in general, we get quite fixated on, so if one player comes out, they have to have someone come in and play the exact same role. And that's not always yeah. necessarily the case. So Eddie Nketiah and Gabriel Jesus are similar strikers, but they're not the same. So if Arsenal were to lose Gabriel Jesus, for, you know, fingers crossed this doesn't happen at all, but if Arsenal were to lose Gabriel Jesus for, let's say, how long was party out for towards the end of last season? Six weeks. Yeah. They, they come up with alternative solutions that would revolve around maybe giving Eddie a bit more support up front, maybe playing more attacking fullbacks, maybe getting more attacking midfielders in the team. And they've, they've got solutions that mean they don't just have to go like for like right now. So... Um, for example, if, if Partey were to be absent, then I think, you know, obviously the obvious replacement is Mamel Nenny, who can do a lot of the defensive screening that Partey does. But if you want someone coming in to replace the on-the-ball stuff, then Zinchenko can play at six. And um, Sambi Lekonga, in my opinion, is best as an eight, but, you know, he can play as a six too if you really want someone who can replicate the passing capabilities. So I think there are options in a way that there weren't last season. And the squad was so thin last season that it was sort of, if they lose any of the big players, then they're in big trouble because there's no one to come in to replace them. Whereas now, if they lose, you know, an important player, then there are alternatives to, to change it. And I don't think Mikel Arteta views it as sort of my team play this way. So therefore, Ooh. I have to have someone to come in. I think he sort of, the phrase I use in my writing a lot is sort of a Swiss Army knife squad. Yeah. In the sense that it's one to break down various different um oppositions that Arsenal come up against and I think it makes sense for, for them to do that and you can see that with the, the signings they made every single one of them has been versatile Zinchenko I mean I don't really think any of us know what position he plays he had, no, obviously he's left back but God knows where he is on the pitch half the time and uh, Vieira is very versatile Jesus can play anywhere along the front line um, who are the other signings Marquinhos can play anywhere along the front line uh, Pedro Neto should he come in would be able to play anywhere across the front line as well yeah. so yeah, they're, they're going for versatility and they've got solutions, definitely. It's just about now whether or not they can obviously get those solutions across the line because if they don't, you know, there's going to be questions, of course, as there always is questions. I've been very impressed with the business that we've done. You know, I'd probably give us a 7.5 to 8 out of 10 for the window to this stage. The outgoings, of course, have been a part of that. It's been a frustration that we've not been able to get as much money as maybe we would hoped, especially for players like, you know, Burnt Leno, Lucas Torreira, players that we could have got more money from but the, the situations have dictated that to become quite tricky Hector Bellerin of course probably will end up moving on for next to nothing if anything at all do you see Arsenal changing that kind of reputation in terms of sales from say next summer when there's more assets for us to move on from better pieces of investment earlier on down the line that's certainly the aim 
you look at the way Arsenal have done their business uh, recently in terms of investing in younger players and lowering the age profile of the squad, that has been what they've been trying to do. So they've been trying to get out of this cycle of terminating contracts, letting players go on the cheap, having players mm. who clearly have no future and have no value in the transfer market. Players like Hector Bellerin, Mustafi, Socrates, Ozil, Kalasnac, uh, Gwenduzi. Well, maybe not Gwenduzi, but I, I could I could go on with a list of contract terminations. I'm sure there's people I've forgotten within that list. And they're trying to avoid that now. So if you look at the players they've brought in, obviously we all know about the, the general 23 and under. Obviously, Jesus and Dinchenko were 25, but generally it's been 23 and under in terms of recruitment. And that means that going forward, Arsenal will be able to, if they're in a position where a club comes in, so let's pick, you know, pick an Arsenal player from the squad at random now. I'll put you on the spot. Or let's go with Odegaard. Odegaard. Okay. Let's say tomorrow uh, Real Madrid come in and they decide they want Odegaard again. Arsenal now are in a very strong position where they've got him under contract for a very long period of time, another three years on his current deal, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. So if they want to sell, they hold, they hold all the cards and they basically are able to drive a, par- a price up in as, mu- as much as they want. And we've seen this with teams like Liverpool have done it very effectively in the past. Um, even Man City do it quite well. And yeah, that, is, that is something that, you know, the club are trying to address. And I think in terms of a long-term plan and creating cycles that are more effective for a team like Arsenal, that's what they want to do. So, yeah, I think the reset of the squad has helped that. I think there will still be cases. I mean, we don't know what's going to happen with Nicola Pepe. As far as I'm aware, there isn't an, an option to buy included in the deal yet. But, you know, the talks are still ongoing with Nice. But mm. that could be another one where Arsenal are forced to let him go on the, on the cheap. But, you know, Beyond that, you're looking at the squad and you don't really see too many cases where Arsenal are going to have to do that anymore. And I think, yeah, Edu has said, he said in an interview with Football London that the um, the policy is is for that to change in the long run and they want to create something a bit more sustainable, a bit more self-sustaining. Obviously, we know that Arsenal spent a lot of money and there's a few murmurs of some FFP issues going on right now. Mm. But I think in the long run, it's the idea is for, for that not to be a problem and for Arsenal to be able to sustain themselves um, ideally through the occasional player sale and um, yeah and that that's that's I think a smart policy I think that's what big teams do uh, the best well run the most well run teams around Europe are doing that and it makes perfect sense to me yeah I agree um, I think that when it comes down to the renewal of contracts there needs to be obviously like this kind of cycle process a player's renewed two three seasons after that renewal you know we need to be focused on trying to get them renewed or if they aren't going to do that then need to look about how we find a solution that financially benefits the club. So yeah. with the Gabriel Magalash example, for instance, you know, I think he's got, what, three three, three seasons left? He's on a five-year deal in 2020, didn't he? So, yeah, including this one and then two more after that. So in terms of what happens next summer with him, if he isn't going to renew with two years left on his deal and say Juventus come back in for him, you would think, yeah, look, if they offer upwards of £50 million, you can get another left-footed centre-back, you would think, with the finances that we've got, probably around a similar age. Take the money, bring another player in. I mean, it was interesting watching Liverpool, you know, the other night against Manchester United. Their midfield was just quite stale. I mean, their entire team yeah, was yeah. quite stale because yeah, yeah. They had the, I think they had the same team in 2018 bar two players, which was Diaz and Elliot, which were Very replaced true. by Mane and Wijnaldum four years ago. You know, this is a team that hasn't seen too much turnover. And I thought the strategy at Liverpool was sound. You know, it's allowed them to kind of elevate themselves to the Champions League level and Premier League title challenging level. But if they're not going to turn over the squad, you know, enough 
by only bringing in one signing this summer. I think they only brought in one or two last summer. And yes, that you get your squad gets to a stage where you don't want to move players on, but you also need to keep the hunger alive in a team. And I feel like if Arsenal are going to push towards title challenges one day, which we all hope that that is the aim, and we assume that that is, of course, the aim, then this team that we're seeing winning the first three games of the season probably can't be the starting lineup in three seasons' time. You need to have that turnover. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think, in fairness to Liverpool, what they have done, which is what Arsenal want to do, is they've, they've brought in replacements well in advance, generally before letting players go. So I know we spoke about they've not... The, the team against Man U was relatively similar to mm. the team that, that has appeared four years before. I think that was unfortunate in the sense they've had a lot of injuries. Of course. And that kind of influences that. But um, uh, with Arsenal, they're trying to do a similar thing where what Liverpool have done with Diaz in the sense they probably knew Sadio Mane was on his way out of the club. And they went out before and got a replacement for him to put themselves in a smart position so that they can say, look, you know, we've got a guy. We don't want to let him go, but we've got someone in ready to replace him. And I think that's what the Albert Sambi Laconga deal, for example, yeah. is about. So if Thomas Partey gets bought by a, a bigger club, then Arsenal will say, well, yeah, we've got Albert Sambi Laconga, who we feel, you know, as much as um, externally, we're all a bit unsure over his position. We, internally, they, they do feel that he, in the long run, can play number six and do that role. And similar vibes going on across the club. They're, they'll be sort of looking towards the academy. They'll be looking towards uh, external buyers, buying smart. And I'd, I'd be surprised, you know, let's say the Gabriel example you mentioned there, if he were to leave next summer, I'd be surprised if they let him go without bringing in a left foot centre-back first. So that's that's sort of, that's a long-term strategy. And they, they'll, they'll have a replacement in place. And Edu has said that he admires Liverpool's um strategy when it comes to that kind of thing so I think that's what they're going to try and do when it comes to rebuilding the squad and obviously the overall has been massive in the past couple of seasons because stylistically there need to be a lot of changes for Mikel Arteta's style of play but um, in terms of short-term stuff I just think it makes sense um, to yeah you know get the replacements in and then sell afterwards and it puts Arsenal in a very strong position. Absolutely and I think that ultimately the the position that Arsenal found themselves in when Arteta took over was much to do with a lack of, you know, really sound planning and strategy yeah. in the recruitment um, and in the market. And that has been addressed very quickly. It's taken time. It's in us suffer with, you know, back-to-back eighth-place finishes at times. Yeah. But you can see from the evidence of last season and the business that's been done this summer and the last summer and the way we started this season, how there is such a clear style of play of what Arteta is trying to build at the club as well. All of these factors combined obviously should every give most, if not all, Arsenal supporters that confidence that the direction that we want to see the club go in is the track that we are now on, as opposed yeah. to what we were on before. Now, yeah. the next station along that track, to use a nice train analogy, of course, is <laughs> Fulham uh, the weekend, which is going to be a very interesting game because for me, even though I like what I've seen of Crystal Palace and obviously they've taken points off Liverpool and away from home, are very challenging because it was the first game of the season, which is always a little bit up in the air. I would look to this Fulham game as genuinely Arsenal's biggest challenge so far. The way that they've started the season, the way in which Mitrovic has acclimatised the Premier League. I know he's played him before a lot, but yeah. I know when he was with uh, previously in the Premier League, it didn't necessarily click the same way after this amazing championship season he's had. They've also added a, a fair few very decent players, including a very well-known player to Arsenal in Bernd Leno. What do you make of the challenge of Fulham? And do you see it similar to me in that it's probably our biggest challenge so far? Or are there 
areas that you think we're going to be able to exploit rather simply? I know what you mean by biggest challenge so far. Mm. And I think on paper, it's probably not. Yeah. But um, I think Palace has probably been the biggest challenge because they're, they're a very good team. And I, I'd keep an eye on them for a top half finish actually this season. I think there's a lot of teams sort of in and around that seventh, eighth bracket who are falling away. And I, I you know, just don't sleep on Palace. But Fulham, I think, have started well because they've got a style of play that's adapted quite well to the Premier League. So obviously Marco Silva wants to play nice football and wants to play out from the back and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, he's been pragmatic in the sense that they're going along a lot more. They're defending in numbers. They're doing things that you need to do. They're pressing quite high. And it'll be interesting to see how Arsenal cope with that because, as you mentioned, Mitrovic is a, a challenge to deal with aerially. Although I think in Saliba and Gabriel, Arsenal have two you know, physical centre-backs who are capable of coping with that. And even Ben White tucking in at right-back is definitely capable of dealing with it. But um, yeah, it's 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 going to be a difficult one. It's not as nailed on the three points as I think the the status of the two teams suggests. Interestingly enough, I saw a stat going around from Albino this morning that Arsenal have never lost at home to Fulham in any competition, which oh, does great. sort of feel like. Well, no, I don't know why I've said that out loud. It feels like I'm tempting fate. This is like when I was looking at the weather forecast for my wedding day for the last six years. It's never rained, not rained once <laughs> in the last six years. So you know what's going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be sunshine and smiles, and that's what I'm going to hear. That's what we want to hear, sunshine and nothing else. But I think I think Arsenal are going to yeah, – you've got to back them to win this kind of game. And Fulham have shown they can cause problems. They cause Liverpool problems, although Liverpool have started the season in a way that's not um, at their best, and Arsenal have started the season in a way that is at their best. And I think if Arsenal play as well as they've been playing in the past couple of games, I don't think Fulham will be able to handle that. I don't think it will be a case of – like it was with Bournemouth, where Arsenal literally just have to turn up and they'll, they'll win. Bournemouth were awful, particularly in the first half. Yeah. Fulham will be better than that. But at Do the same you, time... Is it not giving Arsenal enough credit when we say Bournemouth were awful? Because I feel like we made yeah. them awful. Do you know what I, I know mean? what you mean. I know what you mean. But um, obviously Arsenal were good and we've spoken a lot about that. But I think Bournemouth were awful in the sense they gave Arsenal a lot of space and they didn't go in for 50-50s and they dropped off and they sat very deep and they didn't really support their attack. They didn't offer much going forward particularly after they went a goal down inside the first five minutes. And it was just like, well, I don't really know what you're trying to achieve here, Bournemouth, because, you know, the sitting behind the ball tactic isn't going to work when you're 1-0 down after five minutes. So you've got to come up with something new. And they didn't throughout the whole game. I was really disappointed with them, actually, because I was quite surprised by their um, sort of their, their starts of the season when they beat Villa. But yeah, you know, let's, let's, let's make a fair point that they were poor because Arsenal were so good as well. It's sort of a 50-50 uh, more maybe let's go 70-30 in Arsenal's favour but Bournemouth were poor and they, they allowed Arsenal to be as good as they were in a way that I don't think Fulham will I think Fulham will press a lot more which means mm. that Arsenal will, will, will maybe just, it's a different scenario to deal with I don't know if they'll struggle but the first three teams Arsenal have faced have been not the most intense Palace were probably the most intense of the three and I think Fulham will offer a, a different test and yeah I'm looking forward to seeing how Arsenal deal with it because um It'll be fun. Hopefully they, they win again. Hopefully it'll be 12 from 12. Yeah, I mean, that if it is 12 from 12, you know, this it would be quite a significant length of time since Arsenal have won their first four Premier League games. And mm. we think back four to... Five, is it? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it, it, it's quite an ask. I, what I would say is that obviously the fixtures are favouring us at the moment. You know, at the start of this season, we have been very... 
fortunate with the way in which the fixtures have fallen. That said, you know, there was a lot of complaints about us playing Palace away from home on the first game of the season, you know, and two years ago. Exactly, yeah. So I suppose there's that, but we managed to overcome that challenge. At some point, Arsenal will lose points. Like we, we aren't going to win no. every single game. And, no, anyway. Do you think that's ultimately going to be the biggest test of this team? Not even maybe necessarily when we lose those points, but when we concede first in a game, that, that's going to be a true tell of, of character. Because I think there's only one game last season in the league where we went 1-0 down to Wolves and then came yeah. back to win it. It only yeah. happened once. So are you more confident in this side if that happens, say, against Fulham, that Mitrovic gets kind of an early goal, that we can turn it around as opposed to where we struggled to do that last season? And, and then, of course, why do you think we could do it? Yeah, I'd just like to distance myself from your uh, your negative Arsenal agenda right now. If you have any issues, he's at Tom Canton Media. Go for him there on Twitter. <laughs> yes, the um, most negative Arsenal fan. I am, yeah, I am not saying Arsenal are not going to win every single game of the season. <laughs> I, I will concede they may go behind at one point on the run to winning every game along the league. But yeah, how they come back from that will be interesting. And I think that links back to a lot of what we were saying earlier, isn't it? About um, Arsenal learning from their experiences last year and feeling that they can come back and I think they're having a deeper squad makes a big difference. So if you look at the bench on Saturday, I know Arsenal didn't need their subs, but if you look at Emil Smith-Rowe, Eddie Nketiah, Fabio Vieira, uh, Sambi Lukonga, Tierney, uh, Tommy Asu, all players who, you know, I wouldn't stop. Fabio Vieira obviously wasn't here last season, but um, players who were sort of at points, first team players last season and players who can make a difference in a game. Arsenal have suddenly gone from a position of having a ridiculously thin squad packed with, you know, under 21s players that I think some fans were sort of questioning who are these guys? And yeah. now they're, they're, they know their names on the bench. And it's getting to a point now where we're having conversations about, you know, who do Arsenal leave off the bench, not who do, who do they put yeah. on it? And do you think that, he uses think, his bench well enough? Because I feel like he waits no. a long yeah. time. I agree. Some. I agree. And I think. Saturday was a good example where it was obvious that Arsenal had won the game because Saliba scored early into the second half. And I'm thinking, yeah. I know you want Gabriel Jesus to get his goal, but take him off, give him a rest, let Eddie yeah, go, let him. Eddie run around, <laughs> get, get a bit of confidence, give Emil Smith-Rowe a run in the team, let's see what Fabio Vieira can do, those kind of things. But, you know, um, Mikel Arteta, I'm willing to concede, he knows a bit more about football than me. So <laughs> just, just this once. And I think, you know, he, he knows. But that's been a criticism of him I remember his first first game, first couple of games at Arsenal, we were all thinking, oh, he loses because we'd all got used to sort of the Arsene Wenger. And to be fair, we got used to the Unai Emery half-time subs, which were regular. Yeah. But um, he, he tends to leave it quite late for the subs. But I think having five subs will, will change that and maybe we'll see a few more earlier switches. But yeah, I think it is interesting yeah. that Arsene them so late. I, I don't like it myself. I think if you're bringing on a sub, you want to give them a chance to impact the game and bring them on in the 80th minute doesn't really do that. Am I right in saying that Pep Guardiola didn't make a sub in the game against Newcastle the other day? I'm pretty sure. I think now. Um, and if that is the case, and whilst I'm vamping and talking through, whilst I check for that, could it be that he's learned? I mean, I'm looking now, uh, tell a lie, there was one sub made from the looks of things. Uh, Ruben Diaz came on really early on in the game. But again, he, didn't make, he didn't make any second half changes at all. In yeah. a game in which it was very open, and that you know they needed to, they weren't looking great at times. And Newcastle took their three-one lead, which I know that the existing team obviously got back to three-three. But even then, he didn't make any additions. Is, is this a 
a Guardiolaism that Arteta's kind of taken, this reluctance to use substitutions? Maybe. I think maybe it's just like a case of him being really confident in plan A and wanting to give that its full chance to sort of yeah. go and sort of thinking, I trust my principles of play. I trust those 11 players I put out. I put them out to try and win this game for a reason. So I'm going to sort of try and trust them to to see how far they can go. And I think that's that's big um, for Mikel Arteta. He, he doesn't seem like a guy who likes to admit when he's wrong that much. I think as most football managers are. So um, Unai Emery, as much as we sort of we praised him early on for the sort of tactical tweaks and the halftime subs, a lot of the reason he was making those halftime subs is because he got it wrong in the first place. So I think with Mikel Arteta, maybe he makes the subs a little bit later because he trusts in his his plan for the game and he trusts in his style of play and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, that's very Guardiola-y in the sense that Pep values his principles of play above all else and obviously he wants to win, but he wants to win playing football his way. And um, I think that's that's pretty pretty important for Arteta. That probably ex- explains the, the whole late subs, even though I think there are certain circumstances, Bournemouth being one of those, where you can sort of tweak your, your principles to, to suit the, the situation. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, it's what, what I think will define our season is obviously the rotation. And this Fulham game is the first game in which we then face Aston Villa, another side, just a few days afterwards. Is it more likely that we see rotation in the Fulham game or the Villa game? Because, you know, Fulham, you would look at on paper as a team that you would think would be more beatable than Villa, but yeah. Villa haven't had the best of starts to the season either. Um, and then, of course, there's the lingering kind of match of Manchester United on the Sunday. And having Villa in that midweek game, if you can rest a few players in that fixture to then be fully rested for Man United, that makes more sense. But is Villa the more tough fixture? So you therefore then use your more kind of capable players? So how do you kind of... How if do you, you ask me that, if you asked me that pre-Monday night, I probably would have said rest them all for the Man U game and then just ch- change play the sort of the reserve players. Yeah. Because they'll probably win that anyway. But now it turns <laughs> out Man U are not as bad as we thought, which is annoying. Although... I, well, maybe I mean, Liverpool I, are just bad. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe yeah. Liverpool are bad. Maybe, maybe maybe that should be a title of the podcast we put out. Let's just maybe Liverpool are bad and see, see, if, see if people click on that. But... Um, <laughs> I think it's uh, it's it's an interesting one in terms of rotation. I'd be surprised if he makes too many changes for Fulham, just because why change a winning formula? There's no need to. And I think the guys who've been playing have been playing pretty well. There's no injury concerns as far as I'm aware. They've got a press conference on Friday where we'll find out a little bit more concrete about that. But I'd say, no, just stick with the team for Fulham and then make the tweaks against Aston Villa because, you know, three, three days, four days later, just makes more sense. And then obviously travelling to Old Trafford on the Sunday. So I think, yeah, Villa will probably be the game where I'd expect the rotation. I know on paper Villa are the better side, but Villa have had the poorest start to the season of the, of the two. True. They've, they've really disappointed me um, in sort of how they played. And I'm not, you know, maybe maybe we'll do a pre-Villa podcast. So I don't want to preempt that too much. But I think they're, they're the kind of game, that's the game I'd, I'd expect us to get three points from, whereas Fulham, I'm a little bit less certain. So, yeah, I'd, I'd go full team against Fulham, switch it up a bit on Wednesday night against uh, Villa, maybe change your fullbacks around, maybe yeah. sort of give um, your Emil Smith-Rose a chance to, and then give yourself a, an option, to a decision to make ahead of United because you can feel, those players will feel like, look, okay, going into this big game at Old Trafford, we've got a point to prove. And, you know, I think that that could be the, the right way to go. Mikel Arteta didn't make that many changes, I noticed in the 
second half of last season and mm. maybe that was because of the limited squad but i think that did come back to bite arsenal in the end and so yeah we'll see yeah, I mean, as you pointed out a second ago with the with the Bournemouth game, you know, if there is a chance to take off your star player and protect him, just mm. do it. Like, just, just <laughs> it, it doesn't have to get a goal. I know that he's the type of player, Jesus, that's hungry enough that if he doesn't get a goal, it's not going to affect his confidence. He's going to want to go into the next game and desperate to score in that one. So yeah. if we are 3-0 up in the 60th minute, get Nketiah on. Give him 30 minutes rather than 15. Like, I it is a frustration for me that, that we don't necessarily assess those situations. But like you said, you know, Arteta surely knows more about the game than we do. It's just frustrating when you think, see on the surface, and you're trying to think common sense surely dictates that that's the way forwards. But perhaps he sees it in a different way and sees that confidence is, is going to be key in trying to get those guys, especially Saka, I think, you know, we've not really talked that much about in this show. No. He really needs a goal, like really needs a goal because... In the North London derby, and I remember in the uh, All or Nothing series, they focused quite heavily on the fact that he hadn't scored in something like, what, 17-odd games, I think? Um, right. And obviously he then scored in that North London derby, and that was kind of the catalyst that then kicked him on. Do you think it's kind of the similar thing here? Whereas if he gets one, it would open the floodgates for the start of the season? Maybe. I'm not that concerned about the Mikhail Saka starts the season. I think it's a case of Gabriel Jesus has very quickly become the centre of gravity in this Arsenal attack and wherever he goes the Arsenal attack just goes that way so Jesus tends to drift to the left because he's right-footed and he's got that good relationship with Martinelli sort of Thierry Henry style in the sense that he does drift out to the left and causes problems that way and as a result more of Arsenal's attack comes down the left actually in the Bournemouth game more of the attack did come down the right and I thought that was of the three probably Saka's best game yeah, but um, yeah, he's he he's he had a slow start to the season last season. We were all saying, is he having a Euros hangover? People are saying this year he's having a hangover from last season where he played so many games. Saka's on penalties now, so he'll get goals. He'll he'll get his chances to to score. And um, I, I'm not worried about Bukayo Saka. He's he's an excellent player, and I, I think you know, yeah, maybe he needs a goal to sort of just shake the external critics off his back. But I think internally they're all very happy with how he's playing, and I think he's I think he himself will be fine with how he's getting along i think he's doing well a couple of spontaneous features that i'm thinking of on on the spot for the <laughs> okay party, um of which we may or may not keep depending on on how well kaya answers them um one is <laughs> var watch uh, which i'm very curious to kind of because you know VR gets talked about a lot but one of the big things over the weekend and the, one of the big memes i think across social media is the the, the difference between the rashford offside in the manchester united game that was obviously given onside, and the Jesus offside that was given as offside in the Bournemouth game. How how do we kind of tackle the realism of this and, you know, the consistency of this? Because, you know, I thought they were going to be giving these kind of, the attackers a bit more leniency with these. Do you know what yeah. I mean? They're clearly not showing the lines anymore either. They've changed the system so that clearly you can't see where they're placing them until <laughs> it flashes up on the screen. How much of a of a controversy and conspiracy am I buying into this one, Kyle? I think this is the podcast that's going to finally break that uh, FA conspiracy against the Arsenal team from the PGMR. <laughs> I think we're finally going to get to the bottom of that, and I think this is going to be the podcast that does it. Um, this is why you should subscribe. This, this is podcast. why you need to subscribe, yeah. guys. Keep, we'll, we'll bring you more, more content as the weeks go on. But, yeah... Um, if you're looking for consistency for ref from referees, it's going to be it's it's going to be a, a you're going to be looking for a long time. It's like finding water in a desert. It's just not going to happen. Um, mm. I think you know there's there's always going to be these these instances where the referees make 
decisions which dumbfound us all. If you look back, I mean, Chelsea, look at them with Mike Dean. Um, Mike Dean coming out a couple of days later and saying, I wasn't sure in the moment that Romero was committing violent conduct against Cucurea. And then, yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> it doesn't take a, a, a second replay to realise he's yanked him down by his hair. But VAR makes weird decisions and those lines are confusing. And I, 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 I heard that too in terms of them. I thought they were going to give more benefit of the doubt to the attackers. And it doesn't, it's not really what the offside rule is about in the sense that the offside rule is designed to prevent people from goal hanging and designed to prevent people from sort of gaining an advantage on the defenders. And I don't really think Jesus had much of an advantage by being maybe a, a toenail ahead of the Bournemouth defender. Yeah. That's kind of my issue with VAR is when you sort of challenge it down to the end degree, there's, there's going to be issues. But then there'll be times where referees make glaring errors and you know we we um we, we don't get those decisions so yeah it's important um that arsenal don't get too uh, focused on that because they did last season i think it caused them a lot of issues and Arsenal had a lot of refereeing decisions that went against them and they didn't deal with it well but uh this year i think hopefully they'll be they'll be able to deal with it better and those things will hopefully even themselves out across the, the course of the season We'll have to see in our next week's episode if we've got more <laughs> VAR controversies regarding our... I have our no doubt that they will be discussed. <laughs> and the second and final feature of the show is Kaya's FPL five-star prediction. Oh, uh, so I know that Kaya is a dab hand at fantasy, not. Um, <laughs> similar to me in terms of success rate. But uh, if you were to pick an Arsenal player that you think uh, players should be getting into their FPL teams for the game against Fulham, potentially even a captain's pick, who would you go for? Gabriel Jesus. Not exactly uh, controversial. It's going to be a consistent theme now. Yeah, yeah. Captain Gabriel Jesus against a, a team that's newly promoted from the championship. It just makes sense. I think he's the kind of guy who will score goals and goals win you the most points on fantasy football, if I'm not mistaken. You know, my fantasy, my FPL knowledge isn't great, but I'm pretty sure goals get you get you points. I had William Saliba in my team and uh, that did me pretty well over the weekend. Um, as for Arsenal players, who else I've got? I've got Martinelli in there. But yeah, Jesus is the, the, the guy to go for, I think, as far as the FPL predictions go. Yeah. Um, the other is, uh, I think, Granite Jack is a wild card at the moment. Ah, yes. Picking up assists, picking up a goal. You know, yeah. it's an interesting one. Um, Indeed. So one to, one to potentially keep an eye on. Um, as this is, of course, the transfer window, uh, which we won't have always the pleasure of discussing uh, when the window is not open or leading up to the opening of the window. We should probably address, as we close things out, uh, the latest rumours regarding Arsenal. Pedro Neto and Yuri Tielemans continue to be the two key targets. There is whispers of potential alternatives, the likes of uh, Nikolai Mudrik from Shakhtar Donetsk. Um, there's been uh, suggestions of other potential alternatives as well. Um, but how confident are you, Kaya, of either these or any others actually happening before the end of the window? Um, so for the Pedro Neto one, it depends, I think, on what goes on with Nicola Pepe. Uh, yeah. Obviously, we know that we reported on Football London that Nice are in talks and um, it's not yet clear, as I said earlier in the podcast, whether an option to buy is included in that deal. I think those that's sort of being suggested. Nicola Pepe is obviously in training with Arsenal right now. But that's being talked about and negotiated over as the, the, the deal continues to be ironed out. And that would open up a space in the squad for a, a forward. And I think Pedro Neto is, is the man that Arsenal have 
have sort of honed in on to uh, potentially be that man. They've, they've got other targets as well, but I think Pedro Neto is the, the main one to go for. The, the difficulty is, and whether I'm confident about it, the thing that makes me less confident is Arsenal have spent quite a lot of money and if they were to do a deal, it does seem as though they'd have to do it via instalments and maybe the Georges Mendes link could, could help with that in the sense that he obviously helped uh, Fabio Vieira deal get over the line earlier this window and uh, he's got a good relationship with Edu and Edu's, you know, makes it makes it a point of pride that he's got relationships with these agents and I think he's, he's very keen to to try and take advantage of that as much as possible to help Arsenal and if that helps him get Pedro Neto fantastic because he's a, a really good player and I think he'd be a fantastic addition to the Arsenal attacking line um, what else is there to mention Tielemans is of course uh, the, the big name that doesn't seem to go away I, I saw a report mm. yesterday that Leicester are asking for North of 50 million for yeah. him. That's not what I'd heard. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm, I wouldn't put it past you know Leicester every right to 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 go for that, but that's not what I've heard. Uh, I've heard it's it's a bit lower than that. What Leicester are asking for, and particularly at this stage of the window during the final week, where it doesn't necessarily look that certain that Tiemann is going to sign that extension that was being spoken about. Mm. I think Arsenal may try Leicester's sort of metal and see see what they think in terms of maybe a late bid in the window just to see whether Leicester are willing to accept that because obviously he does have one year left in his contract and he does uh, want to come to Arsenal so yeah that's something to keep an eye on but as we keep talking about with the team as we've discussed it every summer on the you know the press bar show on, on the Arsenal Way YouTube channel it's just there's um, not much need to report in terms of movement but I think this does that final concern one, you no, no, because I think Arsenal are playing, and as you've reported as well, Arsenal are willing to wait, and they're, they're playing a very clever game in the sense that they know they're in a strong position. They know Tielemans has one year left on his deal. So why would they move quickly to get the deal done? They're pretty stacked in midfield, as we've, we've spoken about in previous yeah. well, other shows. Sorry, And um, I think you know Arsenal are in a very strong position with the Tielemans deal. You know, if, they, if they get him, super, because he's an excellent player and would be a fantastic addition to the squad. But if they don't, it's it's not the end of the world, I don't think. I think they'd be they'd be possibly more upset about missing out on, on Pedro Neto because, assuming Nicola Pepe does go, then you're looking beyond Saka on that right side. I know Arsenal want a player that plays across the front line in any of the positions at false nine, um, left or right, but beyond Saka, there is maybe a little bit of a, a, a drop off. Obviously, Martinelli's played on the right and Smith Rowe's coming on the left, and Jesus can play on the right, and there's options there, but. In terms of out and out right wingers, there's a little bit of a drop off, and I think Pedro Neto would would solve that. Um, so I'd, I'd say that that's the one they're probably more focused on right now, or more keen to get done. But yeah, we'll see what happens. We'll have to wait and see. Indeed. Um, let me rephrase that. Just lastly, if we don't sign anyone and the window closes, should we be concerned? Um, I'd say no. I'd say that Arsenal will be, be fine with this squad. I think the squad's definitely good enough to take them through the first half of the season. Yeah, and uh, you know Europa League and group games and Carabao Cup games and World Cup. Obviously, putting a pause on the season means that there's there's not, um, you know, not a huge amount of games that there normally would be. I mean, obviously, it's a bit more condensed, but I think Arsenal will be will be fine with the um, with the squad they've got. I think it's 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 pretty strong in most areas of the pitch, and I think you know. Yeah couple of areas where we'd all like to see them add a few players if they can but I wouldn't say that Arsenal need it which is different from previous windows where Arsenal have gone into the final day of the transfer window thinking oh god we need to sign someone <laughs> now it's a case of you know fantastic if we get someone great if we don't we're happy with what we've got and that's a really strong position to be in for negotiations as well 
if they want to, they can walk away. And that's definitely positive for the Gunners. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I think that rounds things off quite nicely to a close. Thank you, everybody that's tuned in and listened to the pilot episode of the Arsenal Ways podcast. Uh, we're going to be endeavouring to bring you this show once a week with either myself, another host, and of course, Kaya Karnak joining us every week. Kaya, thank you so much for your time, mate. Really appreciate it as always. That's my pleasure. And thank you, everyone, for listening to this first show. Do let us know what you think about it. I mean, let Tom know at Tom Canton Media, me at Kaya Karnak 97, or just the Arsenal Way at Arsenal Way N5. Is that right? Yep. That is indeed. There we go. I've been listening. Um, yeah, just let let us know what you think because we're we're this is a new podcast for us. We're we're sort of uncharted territory, and we're trying to work out what's best for you guys as an audience as well. So do let us know what you thought about this show, what you'd like to hear more of, what you think there's not enough of um, in the Arsenal podcast sphere. I mean, there's a lot yeah. of Arsenal podcasts, but um, I'm sure there's something that's not being covered that you guys would like to hear about more. So just let us know what you think, and we'll we'll try and sort of serve your needs as an audience as much as possible because that is what we're here for at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, and you'll be able to find more of our content in written form, of course, over at football.london. Coverage of this weekend's game against Fulham will, of course, all be there, including uh, team news reaction um, coverage throughout the game and, of course, afterwards to any closure to the transfer window will also be discussed and hopefully we'll have some positive news to talk about in next week's podcast, uh, as Kai said, you can follow me on Twitter at Tom Canton Media. You can follow Kai at Kai Khan at 97. You can follow the Arsenal Way at the Arsenal Way N5. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the show. If you are listening on any of the audio platforms, a review wouldn't go too far away either. Uh, so do drop us one on those platforms if you could. And in there, you can tell us what you've liked, what you've disliked, and of course, what we can do better to meet your podcasting needs. We will see you again very, very soon. And as always, keep following us down. We are.